So I am belabored with this huge podium right in front of me. So all of you over there, because my cheat sheets are over here, may kind of uh, not get all of my attention. So I will not be um, insulted if you get up and you move over here. So there's another uh, video protector over there. Um, you're getting handouts as you walk in, and I would really appreciate the feedback. Essentially, um, this is your time. How, are you all NPs, PAs? What other specialties do we have here? Okay, okay. So um, the, the NPPA track is relatively new, and it's still in evolution, and we really want to bring the most up-to-date information, current things that are pertinent to you, to everybody, obviously, but um, really, what are the needs of the NP and the PA population in the pain world? And so if you just take a couple of minutes, either during the presentation or at the end, just to let me know what you guys want. And uh, if you come to any other uh, sessions in the day uh, course of the track, that uh, you probably get the same handout, so you don't need to fill it out a second time. But I would really appreciate it. And if you want um, some communication back, feel free to put your name and your email um, or email me. I'm really happy to uh, have a dialogue with you because I'm really excited about this conference. I'm excited about pain medicine. I'm excited to be here at 7 o'clock on a Thursday morning in Las Vegas. This is what it looks like. And I'm really excited that you're here today. So thank you. So these are my disclosures. So today we're going to talk about the importance of uh, pa managing pain in the acute care setting and the role specifically of the advanced practice provider. We're going to um, talk about treatment options that are unique to the acute care setting. And we're going to talk about the use of uh, pharmaceuticals and other uh, multimodal analgesia techniques. So anytime you do a, a pain talk of any kind, you really need to define terms. We need to be on the same page in terms of what we're talking about. So the next couple of slides may be elementary to some of you, but I think it's important just to get on the same page so we, we have the right definitions or the uh, common definitions. So acute pain, you know, transient, short-acting, protective, predictable, usually um, um, abates when primary healing completes. Um, we expect it with surgery, with trauma, versus chronic pain, which is that uh, pain that is uh, no longer protective, um, actually can have uh, negative health consequences, is um, longer in duration. Uh, by definition, it's pain that, that uh, lasts three months or longer. It can be transient. It can be persistent. Um, and there may be uh, unknown causality. So uh, you might have patients that um, have primary healing that's completed. There still may be injury. We just don't know what it is. Okay, And then you have that breakthrough or flare pain. So the pain that's unpredictable, it's the most uh, fear-provoking for patients. Um, and again, it can be transient um, uh, or uh, long-term. So nociceptive pain versus neuropathic pain. Again, it's really important to understand the differences in um, characteristics of pain, particularly when you're looking at different pharmaceutical agents um, and or looking at uh, interventional therapies. So uh, nociceptive pain um, can be defined either as somatic uh, or visceral pain. So visceral pain is that deep, achy, um, not well localized um, pain that comes from the organs or the uh, internal um, system. And then you've got somatic pain. So that's more localized. Um, I like to define it as that musculoskeletal, um, sharp, um, again, kind of achy, uh, can be described as dull pain. And then neuropathic pain, again, neuropathic pain can be centrally or peripherally mediated, and by definition, it's injury to the nervous system in some degree. So um, centrally or peripherally mediated, um, as I talked about, the uh, central pain, again, um, abnormal uh, pain processing, uh, peripheral, you can um, have the presentation as polyneuropathies, such as in uh, diabetic poly uh, 
uh, peripheral neuropathy or a mononeuropathy, um, a specific uh, injury to uh, one or two nerves. All right, so who manages pain in the acute care setting? Who manages pain in general? We all do, right? So regardless of what your subspecialty is, regardless of, of uh, if, you, if you practice as a generalist, we all touch pain. And if we don't practice, and we don't feel that we touch pain in our practice, we have we pain internally, right? So we've all experienced pain. We know what pain is. So we all are pain practitioners um, and have a responsibility. In the acute care setting, as we see drop of residence hours, um, as we see more acute care uh, NPMPA programs um, coming uh, online, uh, you really see that that population moving into the acute care setting. So it can be in psychiatry. It can be definitely in surgery. Really, that's, I think, where uh, the use of nurse practitioners and physician assistants has really um, taken a stronghold. Um, but it also can be uh, in oncology. Uh, it can be in trauma. So in our institution, we see nurse practitioners and physician assistants We've seen the volume probably quadruple in the last five years. And so we're constantly, my colleagues and myself, educating our peers because it's our peers that we're interacting with and getting consults from. All right, why is it important? You know why it's important. You're here. We don't need to belabor this cute little slide that took me like a day and a half to put together because I'm not all that talented. But it's because we want to relieve pain. We want to relieve suffering. Um, there's a lot of negative consequences to unrelieved pain, particularly uh, acute pain when you're looking at an acute care setting and you're trying to get patients um, out of the hospital. Delays discharge, uh, reduces quality of life even in that short term. We're going to talk about, the again, the use of pharmaceuticals as well as other multimodal analgesic techniques. So <clears throat> this is um, an interesting study that was done, and it's um, an old study, but I didn't see anything of this quality replicated. Um, what it did is it looked at um, patients, all hospitalized patients over a two-week period of time, and it assessed uh, moderate pain, severe pain, or any pain. And then um, the folks that did the, did the study looked at that 10-year gap. And what I thought was really interesting, what they found, is that all pain, so even though our uh, technology of uh, doing surgeries increased, um, we were able to get patients in and out of the hospital quicker, we didn't do any better job at managing their pain, particularly um, severe pain. So they found that um, severe pain was actually dramatically increased uh, over that 10-year period of time. So... Um, I put this slide up, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on it, but I didn't want to uh, get evaluated and say, why are you presenting studies that are over 10 years old? So if you have interesting in looking at uh, more current studies, you know they're here too. So um, there's just nothing that's really looked at those particular um, uh, individual landmarks over a 10-year period of time. But we're constantly looking at um, doing pain better and, uh, and uh, what the consequences are. All right, uh, millions of surgeries um, on an annual basis, both inpatient as well as outpatient. The outpatient setting is dramatically increased. And what's interesting about our colleagues that work in the outpatient setting, you have a very short period of time to manage these patients. Um, unfortunately, poorly managed pain then results in an inpatient admission, even in the outpatient setting. But um, it's even more imperative that you understand the principles of acute pain management in the outpatient setting, and that if you're the one discharging that patient, either as the primary surgical team or, or as the um, anesthesia provider, you want to make sure that that patient's set up for success and doesn't come back through the emergency room in the next 12 hours. 
Um, the two um, studies that I um, cite there, it was interesting because when you looked at them in combined, showed that half of post-operative patients um, in the inpatient as well as the outpatient setting reported that they um, had inadequate pain relief. 80% um, um, reported post-operative pain. Well, that wasn't that was like a duh factor because I was surprised that 100% of them didn't report post-operative pain, but that less than half of them uh, felt that they got adequate pain relief. Oh, and um, so this, uh, this last citation here was interesting. It's kind of small, and I know it's a big room, um, but uh, it was uh, Cooley and Associates that reported that pain was the most common reason that patients uh, got readmitted to the hospital. And I think that's unacceptable. All right. 40% of, again, over 100 million um, ED visits for acute pain uh, reported in 2008. So again, we're looking at the early 2000 data. Um, pain continues to be a prevalent medical problem on the inpatient setting, and, and, and you know that, and that's why you're here today. Um, and again, we see it um, in all, all subspecialties uh, throughout the institution, both medicine and surgery. So when you look at the consults that we get on our inpatient service, it's from oncology, it's from psychiatry, it's from surgery, it's from trauma. All right. So why, why is this an issue? All right. We've talked about, we've belabored over the last five minutes here the fact that it is an issue. So why is it an issue? Why are you all here? You're here because we're not doing a good job at educating our colleagues, our peers, about the use of multimodal management, um, why it's important, and how to better manage acute pain. We're here because um, we have to learn how to adequately prepare our patients for um, going into surgery, reduce that anxiety component, and then better manage their pain and make sure that they're um, optimized for discharge. There's also a lot of fear about medication side effects. So fear of medication side effects with the patient, but also fear of medication side effects with the practitioner. Oh, I can't prescribe IV methadone. Patient's going to die. Well, that's not true, right? And sometimes that might be your only option on the inpatient setting particularly uh, if the patient comes in on methadone. So you have to feel comfortable with the medications you're prescribing. That's your responsibility, and you have to keep the patient safe. But you also have the responsibility to manage uh, acute pain adequately. So um, how do we do that? Well, we, un we have to um, take some time and talk about and understand the pathophysiology of pain. We need to understand how to do a good, adequate pain assessment. Um, and we need to be aware of the various uh, options for acute pain management, um, both from a pharmaceutical point of view as well as uh, interventions. All right. Again, I hope you guys can see the slides in the back room. I, in the back of the room, I didn't realize that they were going to put me in such a huge room. So the, you may not, the font might be a little bit small. But essentially, this slide goes over um, all of the negative consequences, and it's not an all-encompassing list. But there's a lot of reasons um, that if you don't manage, there are a lot of reasons to manage acute pain, and, and if you don't, it can have severe consequences. Um, up into having a patient have an MI if it's somebody that's compromised to that extent, and they uh, wind up uh, becoming hypertensive or tachycardic, and they just can't sustain that because you're not adequately managing their pain. Impaired sleep is huge. We know impaired sleep is a big, we've heard a lot about, we've heard at various talks at this conference um, today about the importance of sleep. Um, in the outpatient side. Well, on the inpatient side, it's that much more difficult, right? But it's also that much more important because you want primary healing to occur. So making sure that the patients have adequate pain control so that they sleep well, and then helping supplement their sleep.
consequences. Can you, can you hear me? I don't think they can hear Okay, okay, okay. So now I can't hear myself. I could hear myself before. Okay. All right, so um, what we're going to do uh, is uh, talk about uh, identifying again and uh, addressing the cost of pain. Why do we want to, uh, uh, why is it important and how, how are we going to um, uh, manage acute pain adequately? Uh, treat uh, acute pain aggressively. Again, there is um, a lot of good literature out there that talks about unmanaged acute pain resulting in chronic pain. And usually that's in a patient population that has risk factors for um, developing chronic pain to begin with, but um, poorly managed acute pain can definitely um, contribute to that. Uh, we want to expedite discharge. Uh, again, um, hospital uh, hours are um, dollars, and uh, we're all trying to get our patients out. And it's actually good medicine. It's good to get our patients out of the hospital as um, soon as possible because um, you get very sick when you get in the hospital. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and really, uh, again, uh, important to have good communication. So good communication with your other uh, colleagues, with your nursing staff, uh, with your uh, other specialty um, uh, consultants, uh, because uh, we don't want to cause harm to the patient, and then we don't want to just assume that somebody else did it and uh, ignore the patient. So uh, working together as a team, um, we want to uh, eliminate subjective uh, discomfort, uh, both sensory as well as effective. Again, so offering that support to patients, understanding that there's a huge component of uh, effective um, uh, suffering and struggling, um, particularly uh, with increased stress uh, and uh, worsening of depression in patients that have uh, uh, comorbid um, conditions of uh, that sort. And then we want to um, obviously improve our outcomes um, globally. We want to facilitate recovery and healing, uh, and then we want to be um, cost-effective uh, as possible. We don't want to do unnecessary interventions that aren't going to help the patient, so we need to understand why uh, doing nerve blocks or doing, doing what we do or prescribing the medications that we do is cost-effective uh, and actually going to be therapeutic. All right. Um, <clears throat> do we care about the patient's um, satisfaction? Now we do, don't we? How many of you work in the acute care setting? Okay, a little over half of you. So, um, you familiar with HCAPS? Okay. However you feel about it, it's a reality. And so, I think that um, it, it's been a good thing in, in a lot of ways because it's made us accountable um, for patient satisfaction. And I'm not saying to let the patient direct to the care, and there's negative things that have come out of this whole um, uh, uh, going forth with, with uh, paying attention to numbers and to scores, um, but I think that we need to understand that the premise behind it is to make sure that our patients are taken care of and that they're satisfied with their care. Um, so it's a non-government uh, entity, and essentially they're asked by uh, various hospitals to come in and, and, uh, and evaluate the level of the care according to the patient. Um, but of course the government has to kind of put their two cents in. So CMS will actually... Um, uh, fine hospitals that aren't meeting certain um, benchmarks. And so it is something that you want to think about uh, even if you don't believe in the uh, whole HCAPS theory or uh, outside evaluators coming into your institution. All right, Jaco. Jaco's been around a long time. And again, um, whether you like it or not, I think that uh, it's an important um, organization and it's important standards to look at. So. If you look beyond, uh, pain is the fifth vital sign or the numbers, but you understand kind of the, the um, 
the consciousness of um, what they're trying to achieve or what the JCO standards um, uh, ask for. Um, it's really making sure that we are held accountable as healthcare providers to uh, pay attention to our patient's pain. And that's a good thing overall, okay? So not getting lost in the mire, but just understanding that there are outside um, uh, industries looking at what we do. But ultimately, it's for us to take good care of our patients. All right, so what are some of the things that we worry about or we want to pay attention to as healthcare providers um, in making sure that our patients have good outcomes in, in terms of uh, acute pain management? Well, if, you, if they're surgical patients or if they're patients that are having um, uh, planned admissions to the hospital for some kind of treatment, um, it's, it's looking at variables um, that are, put them at higher risk for poorly managed pain. So it's a history of uh, poorly managed surgical pain um, in the past, it's um, patients that are on chronic opioid therapy have special needs. It's going to be um, up to you to figure out what those needs are and make sure that you're meeting what their chronic needs are on top of their acute uh, pain needs. Um, patients that are at high risk for um, individual nerve injury. So um, those are patients that have total joints. Those are patients that have thoracotomies. Any, any type of incision or trauma to an area that's highly innervated um, are going to have a higher risk of acute um, neuropathic pain uh, going out. History of chronic pain with or without chronic opioid use. Um, history of anxiety. Um, generalized anxiety, particularly anxiety about what's the unknown, what's to come in terms of their uh, pain being poorly managed. You're going to hear a lot in this conference about um, anxiety and depression and how they play a huge role independently in poor outcomes in pain management. So paying attention to that is really important. Uh, and then there's other risk factors. There they are. So patients um, that um, have had a history of moderate or severe pain that has um, lasted longer than a month, so we're not looking at that three-month um, definition, but just longer than a month are at higher risk. Repeat surgeries, um, things like uh, patients, again, anxiety, uh, depression, patients that are catastrophizers, genetic predispositions, you may or may not know that or pay a lot of attention, but understand there's unique individual um, genetic variations in patients. And then patients that have had things like radiation therapy, particularly in your oncology population, are going to be at higher risk for uh, centralized type neuropathic pain. And it's managed differently than a total joint would be. Um, you want to consider uh, preemptive analgesia. Um, so that's with medications. So you have a patient that's on chronic opioid therapy coming into surgery. You know they're going to be at higher risk. Or there's some medications, and we'll talk about that in a few other slides, that you want to pre-treat them with preoperatively. Um, and then is there uh, particular ways that you want to work intraoperatively to manage their pain appropriately? Um, and the use of regional anesthesia techniques. So um, this is incredibly valuable. Not all institutions have the ability to do this, but understanding um, that, that it's available to you. Any CRNAs in this audience? Do you do regional anesthesia? Awesome. Very proud of you. So not all institutions will use their CRNAs that way. But um, realize that you have resources available to you. So if you don't have a regional anesthesia team or you don't have an anesthesiologist or you don't have a CRNA, um, other uh, practitioners that you could go to? Are there techniques that you could learn? Um, setting expectations, again, really important, particularly with um, patients that you know are going to be at risk for um, acute pain or poorly managed acute pain um, going in and then uh, also um, during the course of their hospitalizations, thinking about discharge um, at that time that you're planning surgery uh, or a planned admission for uh, some other treatment. Um, 
<clears throat> important to have a detailed history of um, all opiates, obviously, but all non-opiate um, medications used. And so that includes things like benzodiazepines or other um, uh, antineuropathic agents or antidepressants or anti um, anxiety medications that the patient takes because they're going to still need them during their hospitalization. So we can't forget about that. Um, and uh, it may change the way that you manage the patient. But also looking at things like alcohol consumption, um, marijuana uh, use is huge, particularly in the pain population as we get more states that allow um, legalized uh, uh, THC in their communities, um, it's a lot more prevalent. So having that clear, open dialogue with your patient, are you using X and how can I you know, either supplement that with Y while you're in the hospital or somehow make sure that you're safe? And then discharge planning. Again, discharge planning starts uh, from the time that you have a planned admission. And if it's not a planned admission because the patient's coming through the emergency room or a trauma, it's starting to think about what that patient's needs are going to be when they go home. So uh, this is a, um, and all your slides should be um, on the app, um, so you should have access to it. And if you don't, let me know, and I'm happy to send the, send the PDF out to you. But this is um, something that we have available to our patients in the pain clinic that um, are interested uh, in, in taking something uh, away with them sometimes, even though we're not going to do the surgery. Um, they will come and let us know, you know, how am I going to be managed surgically afterwards. And even just having a little piece of paper, maybe with a phone number um, for their surgeon or for the anesthesiologist or for uh, another healthcare care provider uh, to call makes them, eases the anxiety. Somebody's paying attention to the fact that they're probably going to have increased pain and they're going to have increased needs where they're in the hospital. All right. So how many of you are familiar, have used the gabapentinoids? Are there any hands that are not up? Okay, so you should all be familiar with the gabapentinoids um, if you're managing pain. Um, and we all manage pain. We already, you know, uh, ascertained that at the beginning of the lecture. So um, the use of gabapentinoids can be very, very powerful, and there's good data out there to show it can um, help uh, preemptively with analgesia um, and have better outcomes um, of patients going out of the hospital with acute pain or patients that um, have history of chronic pain. And so what we'll recommend, and, you know, there's there's kind of quasi-science to this, but what we recommend is if the patient is on gabapentin um, coming into surgery or to a planned admission, that they will continue that. But if it's surgery or if it's um, an intervention that we know is going to increase their pain, we'll up the gabapentin. And, you know, what's the negative side about increasing gabapentin? For the most part, and I know there's side effects, sedation. Well, the patient's in the hospital. You want to make sure that they're safe when they're getting up and that they have support if they get too dizzy and you have to be careful. Of, you have to be aware of patients that are um, elderly um, or not metabolizing the medic or not excreting the medication, um, but it's it's an, a wonderful uh, treatment tool. And sometimes that might be all that you need. So what we'll do is, if patients on if we want to use Lyrica, we want to use gabapentin. We give it to them a couple hours before with a small sip of water before surgery, um, and then we'll use it in the course of the um, hospitalization. Non-opiate analgesia. So um, acetaminophen is your friend again. Um, the caveat to all of these recommendations is, you know, you need to be healthcare providers and make sure that your patient isn't at risk, doesn't have uh, metabolic um, issues or needs that would preclude them from using some of these, but these are the tools that you have. And if you have the availability to use them all, then you use them all. So we, on all of our patients that come into the hospital, pretty indiscriminately, unless they're um, uh, liver patients or transplant patients, will uh, use uh, acetaminophen, will preemptively treat with that, even if they're not at, acute, at risk for acute pain 
excuse me, chronic pain going out, and then they'll get um, IV uh, acetaminophen for um, as long as they're NPL, and then we'll go ahead and we'll switch them over to oral. Um, and then the use of vitamin C, again, there's um, a couple very small studies looking at vitamin C, again, the anti-inflammatory effects, and what's the downside to taking too much vitamin C? Really, not all? Pardon? Diarrhea. Sometimes that's not bad if you're also having um, opiate-induced uh, constipation, so you balance. Um, I've never seen diarrhea with too much vitamin C. I guess you'd have to take a lot. Huh? No, in kids? Yeah. So anyway, it's a really good, it's a really good tool to use. Just realize that um, it's uh, water-soluble, so it's excreted um, quickly, so you're probably going to want to BID dose it. So you don't give them just their 2,000 milligrams in the morning and then and call it a day. Um, and then the use of uh, SNRI, I like venlafoxine because it, um, it reduces uh, anxiety uh, a little bit, and I think it's a, a nice kind of um, gentle medication. But um, if appropriate uh, in a patient population to use a uh, SNRI because we know that it helps uh, with neuropathic pain, and again, um, the uh, anxiolytic type of effect that you can get can be helpful. Um, one other thing about using or starting new medications in the hospital, you want to make sure that you give your patient a, um, the patient understands how to titrate off the medication afterwards. You know, be that two weeks or three weeks or whenever you do, they have got good follow-up or you give them a, a titration schedule to get off the medication. You really don't want to abruptly stop these medications. And that goes along with good dialogue for patients. Um, the use of opiates, again, uh, you need to know what your patient's coming in with because you don't want them, A, to go through opiate withdrawal, and B, you want to make sure that you cover their needs. So if they are on a gram of uh, morphine coming in, you're going to have to give them a gram plus 20, 25, 30% probably to manage their pain. So just make sure that you're, you're thinking about that. And uh, if you uh, work in the surgical setting and you're used to uh, your residents just writing um, for oxycodone, 10 milligrams, Q, four to six hours, and you have a patient that came in on a gram of morphine, you know, you know that's not going to be um, adequate. So paying attention to that. Methadone and buprenorphine, um, so they're unique medications, and I'm not going to talk a lot about their uniqueness. Um, you're probably familiar with it. If not, um, in the course of this week, you'll get more familiar with those two medications. But in the, in the acute care setting, um, you have to be cognizant if the patients come in, with on, on these medications, are they taking it for addiction or are they taking it for pain? If they're taking it for addiction, you usually know because of the way it's dosed. Realize that the addiction dosing of both of these medications is subadequate for management of pain, right? So um, folks that are coming in on methadone maintenance may be on 60 to 100 milligrams of uh, methadone a day that they get once a day. Well, you know that the half-life is a lot less than 24 hours, and so they're going to need, in order to get the analgesic benefit, that dose differently. So paying attention to these things, and then paying attention to if they do come in on addiction maintenance therapy, that you've adjusted their medication back when they go home, or they've got good follow-up um, with their uh, primary uh, treater. Regional anesthesia, so if there's a nerve in the body, our doctors can block it. Um, and that is uh, really wonderful, particularly with the uh, new uh, technologies of ultrasound therapies. So if you're a uh, provider that places uh, regional catheters or does regional blocks, um, make friends with your ultrasound technology because uh, there's uh, remarkable ways to get uh, to various nerves. And understanding the neural anatomy and um, what coverage uh, certain particular blocks have but um, can save you tremendously in terms of um, opiate sparing 
um, decreased days in the hospital, even if the cost up front is higher, the cost globally, and there's studies to show that, um, is improved, and, and better patient satisfaction. We um, do a lot of orthopedics at Stanford. We have patients that come in that said, I had a total joint replacement um, 20 years ago, um, and I didn't have regional technique. And then I came in, and I had my second knee replaced with you guys, and I had an adductor canal catheter, or I had a femoral nerve catheter, and I, I, you know, and it's just, they cry, they weep. And it's not because they're in pain, because they just can't believe how easy it is. And they get out two or three days faster. Is that true, Michelle? Yes? Yeah. All right, and then other sophisticated, oh, I'm sorry, yes? Yeah, so, the, so that's a good, that's, that's a difficult dilemma. There's not really good, um, Oh, I'm sorry. So the question was for the buprenorphine. If you have a patient that, that you know is on buprenorphine therapy that has a um, uh, pre-planned big surgery, do you just keep the buprenorphine going, or do you have them stop it and then switch them to something else? So we can talk more about the, you know, the buprenorphine dilemma on the outside because I don't want to belabor it too much because everybody does it differently. So we don't do that. So this gentleman over here was saying that they taper them off, they supplement them with um, some other opiate if they need to, and so that they have um, clean receptors so that they can manage acute pain in the acute care setting and then hopefully put them back on their buprenorphine. But you have to first look at why is the patient on the buprenorphine? Are they on it for pain? We have good products that are out now for primary pain management, the use of buprenorphine. But when it initially came out, it was for addiction, right? So is your patient on it for addiction, and what does it mean to take them off of it and send them home with oxycodone post-surgery? And how difficult is it going to be actually to manage their pain in the acute care setting with them on the buprenorphine, and what does that mean? And they're um, happy to share our protocols with you, but essentially we've done both. We've tried both. And what we do, even for big surgeries, is we keep them on their buprenorphine, and then we supplement. And I'm happy to share that more, like exactly how we do that if, if you need more information on that. Yeah. Um, all right, and then there's more sophisticated blocks, the perivertebral blocks. Um, again, um, you're going to want to um, um, couple with your anesthesia providers and then things like uh, tap blocks and, and whatnot. And I'll share with you some of our protocols. Um, infusion therapies, how many of you use IV lidocaine or IV ketamine, heard about it, frightened of it? Okay. And Lance got the frightened of it. So really, really good um, uh, uh, compliments uh, to uh, in-hospital in uh, anis uh, analgesia management. So I think I put my, our protocols up there. Okay, so we use ketamine and lidocaine intravenously uh, preemptively if we know that a patient is going to be at high risk for um, acute pain, poorly managed acute pain during that time. We will also use it if we find that patients have poorly managed acute pain anyway, and they're using a lot of opiates, so they're using a lot of medications that are compromising them, and then we'll use that as a supplement. The, um, the downside to using these medications is right now that they, we can only prescribe them uh, on the acute pain service. And so it's, we have to, if we have a big volume and we have a lot of patients and we don't have the ability to manage everybody, some patients might not get this therapy, but um, you can definitely uh, use this uh, in, the, in the intraoperative setting, monitored by your CRNA or your anesthesia provider, 
um, and then um, get uh, other um, specialists to help you manage it on the outpatient side. So these are kind of our protocols for patients that we, we know are going to have difficulty. They have chronic pain. They're on chronic opioid therapies. They're going to have uh, a lot in need for medications postoperatively. Uh, this is the protocol that we use intraoperatively. And then on the floors, usually what, what we'll do is we'll run IV lidocaine, one milligram per kilogram per hour, um, and then we monitor um, safety levels, essentially, in the course of the time that they're there, usually for about four to five days. And then um, for ketamine, it really varies. Um, sometimes um, we'll uh, start patients at 10 milligrams an hour, continuous infusion, and then just watch for um, side effects. Um, again, this uh, talks um, to the, um, and uh, $5 for anybody that notices the typo in there that I didn't get a chance to change. Um, so this speaks to the importance of communication with your, your surgical um, colleagues. Um, so you have to be cognizant. Local anesthetic is wonderful however you deliver it because it treats the, the neuropathic pain problem. Um, but if you have surgeons that are using a lot of intraoperative local anesthetic, understanding how that impacts your ability to use lo more local anesthetics within that first 24 um, or seven day, 24 hour, seven, seven day period. So communication is key. And as um, Xperel uh, comes on the market and it's used a lot more by our orthopedic colleagues, um, it's important that they let us know so that we don't um, overdose patients on um, local anesthetics. Uh, again, the use of a COX-2 inhibitor, if it's not uh, contraindicated, our um, orthopedic colleagues will let us use COX-2 inhibitors. Um, and most of our um, vascular um, surgeries will, um, as well as uh, other surgical specialties. Uh, so again, a very wonderful, even if it's just for a couple of days, um, while that first 48 hours of primary healing takes place, a supplement um, to hopefully be opiate sparing. Um, and then <clears throat> there is some good data out there that looks at um, the importance of um, reducing anxiety, and you could do that with a low-dose lorazepam uh, or um, even clonidine uh, preoperatively and then uh, during the course of the stay uh, in the perioperative period. Um, there's some um, uh, good literature coming um, on the horizon of IV magnesium, using IV magnesium intraoperatively um, in reduction, even by a couple of points, VAS points, um, of postoperative pain. So again, something to consider. Um, if you're a general surgical um, specialty or you're just an internist uh, taking care of the patient um, in the hospital, probably not something that you're going to do in the course of their hospitalization, but something to maybe talk about uh, with your surgical um, specialties if it's a planned surgery uh, or a planned uh, admission uh, to try. Um, if you've tried everything else or, or you're really worried about this patient having a difficult time managing pain. And then uh, <clears throat> a small study looking at IV dexamethasone uh, intraoperatively and uh, the use of Presidex. <clears throat> and again, I'm not, if you want um, more on the uh, data with the Presidex use, usually we use it in the ICUs. I'm happy to share that with you um, offline. <clears throat> so um, this is a nice um, uh, article that came out. Here's your journal. I know it's small, but again, it should be um, in your uh, slide deck. Um, so this was a study that was, uh, or this was an article that was published um, in 2014 that looked at various surgeries, common surgeries, um, and the use of uh, uh, multimodal analgesia. So um, 
all, all of the surgeries except the colorectal, which is interesting, and I'm not sure exactly why, because with our colorectal surgeons, we'll use the gabapentinoids. But they all call for preoperative gabapentinoid consideration. They don't dose it out for you, but they talk about that. I gave you the dosing earlier in the lecture. Um, intraoperatively, the way, um, various ways that you can manage pain from a pharmaceutical point of view, but also from um, uh, interventional um, techniques. And then postoperatively, things to think about. The use of NSAIDs, again, usually COX-2 inhibitors, if that's available at your institution. Um, the use of acetaminophen um, was pretty universal there. Uh, and then in some of the more complicated um, cases, there's um, been nice uh, literature and nice evidence to look at ketamine um, and lidocaine, as we talked about. <clears throat> okay, so these are our clinical pathways. Let me look at my notes. Okay, you're not going to be able to see that. So these are, um, we have cl some clinical pathways set up at Stanford for high-volume surgeries that we know um, we want to get out of the hospital as quickly as possible because we don't want them to have um, further uh, negative consequences of being in the hospital, i.e. infection or, or clots or whatnot. So we formalized um, some of our clinical pathways for total hip, for total knee, um, we've got some uh, informal clinical pathways for um, thoracotomies, foot and ankle surgery, shoulder surgery. <clears throat> it's really getting the buy-in of your surgical team. Um, <clears throat> so um, as surgical NPs or PAs or residents or interns, educating your surgeons about um, the use of some of these and showing them the, the data behind why we would want to use these particular techniques um, for better outcomes. So better outcomes, saving money, um, better patient satisfaction, those are the three things that you're going to hang your hat on when you're looking at clinical pathways uh, for managing um, uh, perioperative and, and uh, uh, hospital uh, anesthesia for the patients, or analgesia. Um, so you're not going to be able to read this, and I apologize. Again, it's in your slide deck, but this calls out exactly what we do, and I think it's a nice reference uh, point for you, and that's why I added it here, just, just uh, for you to have reference that you can look back on. Um, for foot and ankle surgeries, uh, we do popliteal catheters. We'll do single-shot uh, saphenous blocks. We'll put them on a PCA, and then usually um, a short-acting uh, opiate of some sort. We use oxycodone, but that's just because it's on formulary for us. Um, as needed, we usually will uh, dose our um, short-acting uh, oral opiates every three hours as opposed to four to six, which is what a lot of your... Um, your uh, colleagues may be more comfortable with because that's outpatient dosing, right? We don't so much worry because the patients are being um, looked after more closely in the hospital. Um, so again, short half-life, so you want to dose it more frequently. So it's safe to dose these short-acting opiates every three hours, and that's kind of what we do in clinical practice. Uh, shoulder and elbow surgeries, um, really um, nice surgeries for um, plexus, um, brachial plexus catheters, <clears throat> but really more the interscaling catheters. Um, or even just a single shot. So if you have um, a, your anesthesia providers don't feel comfortable leaving catheters in for whatever reason, they don't, they don't want to manage them, they don't have, you don't have the resources in the hospital to manage them, a single shot of any of these injections at least will get you through that first 24 hours of uh, um, perioperative healing. Um, and then um, for complex spine surgeries, we actually have... Um, uh, formed a collaboration with our surgeons that feel comfortable putting um, directly placed uh, epidurals in during their spine surgeries, and they can be quite effective. All right, should we formalize the rest? So um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this slide, but I, I think that I've made my point about regional anesthesia and the importance you can find um, a good distribution of coverage and you have a trained 
provider that knows how to do these, um, these regional anesthesia techniques, um, why wouldn't you set up some kind of a formalized um, plan and, uh, and just communicate that with the rest of the team and then talk about the importance of the multimodal <clears throat> medications that we talked about. So it's no longer just about using morphine. It's really looking at adjuvant medications. I think in the uh, outpatient setting, you know that you're held accountable to making sure that you um, introduce to the patient, you assess the patient appropriately for other things that you can use, not other techniques that you can use, behavioral management therapies, but other pharmaceuticals that you can use beyond um, uh, opioids uh, for management of nociceptive and neuropathic pain. And don't be afraid of using them on the inpatient side as well. All right, so I put this slide up there because um, it's just a nice depiction and nice understanding. If you're looking at using um, regional anesthesia techniques or various pharmaceuticals to understand where it hits in the pain pathways and, uh, and the importance of it and gives the science behind why you would use a particular medication via a gabapentinoid or in an opioid or a different um, uh, techniques or types of medications or an SNRI. All right, and then the next couple of slides are um, studies um, that looked at, and they're interesting studies, so they're all current. So this was uh, published in 2013, um, and Garcia and colleagues looked at 22 patients um, in multimodal anesthesia um, that were coming in um, for surgery, and what they wanted to do is they wanted to look at the comparison of um, IV morphine use using just IV morphine or multimodal analgesia. And um, so both patients got access to IV morphine, and you you obviously, and, it's, and it, can, it sounds intuitive, but the patients that um, were on the IV morphine only had higher IV morphine um, utilization, okay? And what that can mean is higher risk of respiratory depression, other complicating factors, um, problems with uh, moving your bowels. So the patients that had the COX-2, they got pregabalin, and they got um, oxycodone um, extended release, did much better, and had lower morphine um, utilization. So if your patient can take PO, why wouldn't you use uh, another uh, combination of medication? Um, and then this study just looked at the use of um, COX-2 and uh, pregabalin uh, in lowering um, their VAS scores in patients that had a total hip surgery. And again, they were um, able to reduce and, and have um, improved uh, functionality. Uh, this study looked at 220 ankle surgeries, again, using multimodal analgesia, and uh, they wanted to look at um, length of stay um, and uh, return to function. And so the patients that got the multimodal analgesia using the um, oxycodone ER, using the um, pregabalin, the COX-2, and acetaminophen, all did better. Um, had uh, increased um, discharge time, um, decreased uh, days in the hospital, and then had uh, improvement of functionality, which then led to their, um, their, uh, de their uh, discharge sooner. Um, so, and I I'll, so same thing. So obviously I'm not gonna put studies up here that tell you that you know, it didn't work, um, but these are good, really good, well-done studies that tell you that the use of multimodal analgesia, so just thinking of things like acetaminophen use, a COX-2 if it's not contraindicated, using the oral route as opposed to the IV route is gonna get your patient out of the hospital quicker, it's gonna be cheaper, and the patient's gonna have um, less um, side effects. And it's cost, it's cost equivalent or it's cost um, uh, better. All right. So <clears throat> really nice um, studies that were done here. This old data, again, but it looked at, there haven't been updated studies, <clears throat> looked at the decrease in DVT um, using epidural. 
uh, versus general anesthesia. So um, in, in the studies that they looked at, so epidural was combined with general anesthesia or gen general anesthesia alone, you had a decreased risk. 30% is pretty significant in DVT rates because you know if a patient gets a DVT, what that means in terms of the consequences um, of their hospitalization and then um, for six months or possibly six years after that. Um, reduction in intraoperative um, bleeding, which was pretty impressive. And again, you can think of the, the, uh, the dynamics of uh, epidural analgesia and why that would be a, a factor. Um, and then again, better, better pain relief globally, but uh, improvement of functionality and mobilization. All right, so this is just a slide looking at um, epidural versus spinal anesthesia with local anesthetics. Um, and again, this is um, additional studies that show you decrease in, in blood loss, um, decrease in pulmonary um, complications because the patients is, are mobilizing quicker, they're taking deep breaths, they're coughing, um, less uh, thromboembolic um, uh, events. Um, ileus, which is a big um, consideration, particularly in your um, abdominal surgery patients, um, but just in surgery in hospitalized patients in general, um, with or without opiates, more with opiates, uh, and then uh, MI as well, again, because less stress on the body. So uh, neuroaxial blockade, we talked about the use of either using a single shot, preferably using a continuous catheter. Depending on our catheters, um, we will generally use um, our indwelling catheters, be they peripheral or um, uh, neuroaxial, anywhere from two to five days. Um, it's got a pretty good safety profile. Um, the risk of infection is very low, although you still need to think about that. But you need to train your uh, folks on the floor how to manage these catheters. So that's a consideration, and uh, they're not difficult. So it's, it's a consideration worth having. Um, you don't get uh, hypotension um, with a uh, single block. So there, again, less complications. But remember, hypotension, depending on where you put the catheter, neural axial, is only going to be... Um, pertinent if you're using a local anesthetic. So if you have a neuroaxial catheter and you're worried about hypotension or there's a problem, just use uh, a, uh, an opioid, right? So what's the advantages of using an opioid neuroaxially versus orally or IV? You use less, less side effects, right? So why wouldn't you want to use that route if you have it available to you? And then don't, um, don't uh, discount the use of um, local infiltrate, okay? So that's uh, definitely something to think about. When we um, place neural axial catheters um, or remove them, we um, follow really the ASRA guidelines, so the American um, Society of Regional Anesthesia. So those are the um, folks really that are the um, experts in telling us what anticoagulants that we have to be aware of, what do we not want to use when you have an epidural or you do a spinal anesthetic. So this is just our protocols at Stanford, and it follows the ASRA guidelines um, pretty closely, which usually change every three to five years. <clears throat> something that's really important is when we look at anticoagulation these days, it's no longer just about the heparin or the warfarin, right? So there's a lot of other very good, highly used anticoagulants um, that your patients that are in AFib or have a history of, of chronic clots may be on, and they have different parameters in terms of management. So you just want to pay attention to that too and keep up on the literature. If you're considering these anesthesia techniques um, or you're um, on a service that then has to manage them or um, removal, or if you're on a surgical service that wants to use the anticoagulant and you know you have a patient that's got an epidural catheter in, when do you say, hey, wait, I'm not going to give that Lovenox because I know it's going to have detrimental. We're never going to get that catheter out. So you have, to, you have to understand your patient in the clinical scenario. Okay, we're coming to the home stretch here, guys.
So we talked a lot about surgery trauma um, and kind of focused on that patient because the reality of it is those are the patients, those are the majority of the patients that you're going to see in the, in the acute care setting. Um, but there's other patients that you want to worry about um, or be conscious of, particularly if you're in these subspecialties. So oncology patients, they're getting admitted for one to two days more frequently for chemotherapy, for radiation therapies, for other um, therapies that um, are going to be painful to them. We um, don't infrequently get consulted by our psychiatry colleagues. <clears throat> and there's always that classic debate. Their depression will get better and they'll be less suicidal if you manage their pain better. Well, if we manage, you know, maybe if you manage their depression and their anxiety, their pain will be better. And so that's, uh, that's the fun um, debate that we have with our psychiatry colleagues. Nonetheless, we work together, and, uh, and that actually we get a lot of consults from psychiatry. So um, it, it's important to understand that pain is everywhere. Labor and delivery, now usually they have their uh, dedicated um, specialists. If any of you work in labor and delivery, um, you understand how that's a unique population, particularly when you worry about um, the baby and the, and the mother or the, um, the term uh, pregnancy. Um, but those, those folks have pain or those folks have had chronic pain and then they come in and um, they have a, a baby um, that's on the way and how do you continue to manage their pain? All right, and we already talked about this. We all have a role in managing pain and as we as um, specialists, um, NPs and, and PAs go into the acute care setting, it's important for us to understand it's just not about the acute situation that we're gonna have to manage the patient there for, be it radiation therapy, uh, chemotherapy, surgery, it's really man managing the whole patient, right, and the whole picture. And uh, you may not work in an institution where you have the luxury of calling the pain service and saying, hey, I need help. So understanding that patient population, and then if you're the, pa if you're the, um, the primary care practitioner getting the patient ready for surgery, understanding what your roles are, okay? It's important, as we talked about, to decrease cost, to decrease suffering, increase patient satisfaction. It's all very important. And, uh, and, and how we do that is really in an interdisciplinary fashion. So it's talking with our colleagues, um, understanding what the patient's risk factors are. If the patient has poor coping, it's making sure you spend the time with that patient to get them optimized going into surgery. Just reducing that fear factor can be enough to um, get you um, through a, uh, a planned uh, acute hospitalization successfully. All right. So um, this is a nice study. So the next, the next couple of slides just look at studies um, talking about the importance of um, uh, uh, perioperative, preoperative, uh, and post post improving postoperative outcomes with preoperative preparation. How many P's was that? was five piece. So it's um, so this was a Cochrane a database um, review, and it looked at um, uh, it was a meta analysis, and it looked at psychological preparation, um, and it found um, for the most part, and the evidence wasn't really strong that if you can uh, prepare your patients preoperatively, particularly those at higher risk, that you're going to have better outcomes uh, in your acute hospitalization. All right, and then this is. Um, so today, Beth Darnell is signing her book out in the, in the hallway. So go meet her and say that, uh, that you heard all about her, her most recent study in this lecture this morning at 7 a.m. in Las Vegas. So um, what uh, Dr. Darnell did is she looked at, she did a meta-analysis of about 15 studies. So it was over 5,000 patients that they looked at. Um, and this was uh, the importance of using 
um, preoperative preparation um, in patients that were um, undergoing musculoskeletal surgery. And uh, she really didn't find a good um, uh, amount of literature out there to support the screening and the treating of um, distress preoperatively to improve outcomes. But she did find that the, um, the literature tended towards uh, an improvement of outcomes. Um, so I think why we haven't seen a lot of strong evidence is just because we haven't done the right studies. Um, but the two studies that I presented to you, Dr. Darnell's study and the study that was um, previous to that, really looks at a trend towards, and it almost is instinctive in terms of um, improving outcomes if you can prepare the patient properly. All right, and then um, this, this was actually a really interesting study um, that, uh, that I put in here just because I found it so interesting. So this was the use of melatonin. So again, we talk a lot about the importance of sleep. Um, and in the ICU, it's not only the sleep, but it's reducing um, anxiety. And so um, what this study did, it was a single study, center study. So um, it wasn't a multi-center study, but um, it did have a, a lot of patients that it looked at for the most part. And it compared the use of um, Halcyon with um, um, melatonin. And what they did is they, um, they had um, Halcyon available to the patients um, for anxiety and confusion, not confusion, but anxiety and restlessness. Um, and what they did is they preemptively in the um, study group uh, dosed them with up to six milligrams of melatonin. So three milligrams at point X and then another three milligrams at point Y. And they looked at um, the use of the halcyon in this patient population. And they found that it decreased, right? And so why is that important? Because you know that your ICU patients are confused anyway. Um, and so what can we use that's really not going to be detrimental to them, that's, that, that is reasonably safe, um, and they found the use of melatonin um, very effective. And I thought that was a really nice, elegant study, small, but a, a nice, elegant study, and something easily reproducible, right? So this is something, if you're, in the, if you're working in the ICU and you're looking for a study to do, how, how neat would that be to do? All right, so again, we talked um, a lot about the use of multimodal analgesia, so using ketamine, using lidocaine, using the other um, pharmaceutical um, agents that are available to you. Unfortunately, it's unique to the inpatient side because even in the outpatient surgery center, um, you may not have the ability to use IV ketamine and IV lidocaine just because of um, the, the uh, monitoring that needs to be done. Um, but these are excellent tools that you can use in the acute care setting. All right. Um, understanding the principles of a PCA and why you would use, say, a Demerol PCA versus a morphine PCA versus a fentanyl PCA, and what are the pharmacodynamics and why we use PCAs um, for the stacking effect. So it's understanding the, the mode of the medication, um, the delivery of the medication, and then actually the pharmacodynamics of the medication and why you would use it. Um, Non-opiate uh, analgesics we talked about pretty extensively, and it's the same for the surgical patient as you would use in the medicine patient. And then um, the importance of preemptive analgesia, so understanding which patients are at risk, understanding your role um, as the primary provider for the patient with an anticipated hospitalization, or if you're the acute um, practitioner taking care of that patient, um, and then teeing the patient up for discharge. And this is um, just another uh, handout that we give our patients um, that are anticipating surgery, and so we think, we think a lot about it, and, uh, and I want you to think a lot about it too. So discharge planning, um, really important. What uh, this uh, study looked at was um, there was a, um, oh, this is, this is an interesting study as well. It talked about going back to the HCAP scores and the patient satisfaction. So we talked a lot about patient satisfaction is important, but we can't just look at the numbers and we can't treat according to the numbers. Um, 
But what uh, this study looked at is um, one of the things that you've seen in a trend, and I think it's going to be a downtrend with the C, uh, CDC guidelines, is that how do you increase patient satisfaction? You want to make sure that, that they're optimized for discharge, that they get what they need. Usually optimization for discharge from a surgical point of view or when you're d discharging the patient from the acute care setting is making sure that they have that oxycodone or that hydrocodone or that dilated prescription to go home with. Okay, so I'm thinking about your post-operative needs or your post-hospital needs, but what, what is happening to these prescriptions? Even if the patient goes home and the patient's not having pain, do they still fill it? Yes, they still fill it. And then what happens? It sits in the medicine cabinet. So is this, you have to think, is this, are we doing the community a disservice by just writing all of these prescriptions without thinking is the patient really going to need it, giving them hundreds of pills that sits in the medicine cabinet that somehow finds its way into our community. So it's being responsible practitioners when you're prescribing as well. So I'm not saying don't give them that prescription. I'm just saying think about why, why you're managing the patient the way you are. All right, so in summary, we talked about the importance, and I, and I think you all knew the importance of managing uh, acute uh, pain in the acute care setting, um, both acute and chronic pain, or you wouldn't have gotten up at 6 a.m. to get here at 7 a.m. Oh, and I don't want you to miss breakfast, so I'm going to hurry up real quick because I want you to go have breakfast. Um, we talked about the unique options to the uh, hospitalized patient, the use of intravenous um, therapies as well as um, neuroaxial therapies, some of the, the tools that you can use, uh, pharmaceuticals for multimodal analgesia, it's your non-steroidals, uh, usually COX-2, it's your Tylenols, it's your uh, gabapentinoids, it's your other uh, non-opiate analgesics, as well as appropriate um, use and, and choosing of your opiate analgesic, uh, and then patient setting ex patient's expectations, um, and making sure that you are communicating with your, um, your surgical colleagues about um, the appropriate management and the appropriate kind of preemptive management in patients that they know are going to have acute um, needs or are going to be difficult to manage. All right, so I think that's my last slide. All right, so thank you all for your attention. I know that was a lot of information, and you've been very generous with your time. Thank you.